All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another YouTube video and Podbean podcast on Gaudium et Spes 22, uh, which you can you can access via Podbean podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music. And uh, also, obviously, if you want to see the YouTube video, there's that, too. You, have, you can look at my ugly face. And uh, I think that those who only listen are at the advantage of not having to look at my ugly face. So there we go. Also, I want to warn listeners that I still have small lingering effects from the bronchitis that I picked up while in Rome. So if I there's an I, I you know, I, I should have, you know, I'm a complete Luddite technologically. So I should have like a mute button or something. Well, there is a mute button when I feel a cough coming on, but I, I choose not to use it. So too bad for you if you have to listen to my coughing. <laughs> Uh, so there's that. Anyway, once again, I have a wonderful guest and I'm very excited. The guest today is uh, Daniel Drain, D-R-A-I-N, just like it sounds, Daniel Drain. And we call him, I call him Danny. Uh, so I'll probably go from Dan to Daniel to Danny throughout the conversation. Uh, uh, Daniel is, in fact, a former student of mine. Uh, from DeSales University. It's how we first came to know each other. I knew him as a young undergraduate pup, and then off he went to the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family in Washington, D.C., where he is currently finishing up his doctoral dissertation so that soon you will be Dr. Daniel Drain. And uh, Danny is, in fact, a, a scholar, a budding young scholar, in what we would call communio theology, resourcement theology. Uh, what exactly is your dissertation about? The uh, sexy title is Saving Finite Freedom on the Meaning of Freedom in Hansers von Balthasar's Theology of Redemption, which was a way for me to write about uh, the descent into hell in von Balthasar's thought uh, as disclosing the full meaning of human freedom. So it's really, it's a dissertation on freedom in von Balthasar's thought, but in fact, the descent into hell and everything surrounding that is pretty central for that issue, which oh, itself good. Is we, we, we will definitely discuss that because a lot of people misunderstand Balthazar in this regard, and maybe they understand it and just don't like it. <laughs> so to, we'll, we'll, we'll delve into that. Uh, also, that. <laughs> you also uh, now work for St. Bernard's School of Theology up in Rochester, New York. Uh, right. And what exactly is your official title there? I, I wrote it down somewhere and I misplaced it. It may have fallen on the floor. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a few titles. I'm long story short, I'm in charge of academic operations, which carries a staff title, but I'm also, I have an appointment as a lecturer in pastoral theology. So both of those things. And I coordinate our pastoral field education. The business card is, is rather unwieldy. Um, yeah, I imagine. Well, the proximate reason I asked uh, Danny to come on the show was that I was supposed to attend a conference in honor of communio theology at St. Bernard's School of Theology last fall. And due to some health issues I was having with vertigo uh, and, and travel was limited, the vertigo is now gone, thankfully. So now I am open to speaking invitations and they're piling up. So uh, I'm becoming world, a world famous speaker all over the <laughs> all over the American landscape. Not really, uh, but it's fun. Uh, and at any rate, uh, at that conference, which I was supposed to attend, you gave a paper 
on, you know, exactly what is it that we're allowed to hope for with regard to eternal salvation, uh, universalism, massa damnata, uh, somewhere in between, whatever. And it's an excellent paper. And since this is a burning topic in the contemporary church, you know, it's all over social media, like the debate between David Bentley Hart and the Dominican John Rooney, and, and people are lining up with pitchforks in hands on either side. Uh, and so I, I thought your paper was very illuminating. It's both sympathetic to Hart's argument, but also it raises some uh, necessary caveats. And then I have uh, some uh, some questions I have with regard to your to your paper. So before we get to the paper, though, and the whole question of universalism and David Hart and Balthazar and hopeful universalism, whatever you want to call it, I want to uh, because you are. Uh, you know, a student of communio theology. You are studying at the Institute in Washington, where the late, great uh, David Schindler, David L. Schindler was. His son still teaches there. You get people like Nick Healy, Mike Hanby, Dave Crawford, uh, Margaret McCarthy, and, 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 and Antonio Lopez, and, and a bunch of others I'm probably forgetting, a bunch of heavy hitters. So you are, man, you're up in it. You are in the belly of the communio beast. And so I'm always getting questions from readers, viewers. You talk about resource month theology. You talk about communio theology. Now, you and I and Matt Cooner and Lisa Lacona once had a conversation about this before the conference. But let's uh, let's rehash it. Let's uh, uh, because a lot of people are new to my yeah. podcast. What exactly would you say if you could encapsulate it in you know a half an hour or less? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what exactly? Uh, what exactly is resource month theology or communion theology? And, and, and another question would be, is there a distinction to be made uh, between resource month theology and what we call communio theology? Uh, I just use the two terms synonymously, but maybe that's not entirely correct on a scholarly level. Um, but you know, that's a sort of small point. So what, what exactly is resource month communio theology? Sure, sure. Well, just one minor point before that. There's a very popular podcast that I listen to. It's the Always Sunny in Philadelphia podcast. And they do the same thing you do where uh, you're a trendsetter chap. They do the same thing you do yes. where you record video and post that to YouTube, but they also, it's just a regular podcast, but they differentiate. They call the people who watch it creeps and the others listeners. So if you wanted to adopt some new terminology, you could address the, the creeps and listeners. You know, I love anybody that would insult their own viewers. That's, I mean, is that meant as an insult to call call the viewers creeps and, and yeah. others listeners? I would not call my viewers creeps. I would I would call them wonderful human beings who have stumbled upon the greatest video series ever put <laughs> on YouTube. Good. and recognize the genius and the quality therein and, and so subscribe to it. I'm up to quite a few subscribers now. So that kind of surprises me. And it goes to the heart of, you know, what is resource month theology? Because uh, obviously there is most of the people I interview are, you know, practitioners of some version of resource month theology. So obviously there's an audience out there for this. And so we can talk about maybe why that is. But OK, let's get to it. Let's encapsulate yeah, yeah. resource well, I, month theology. Um, I mean, you exposed me to to communio theology as a student. And eventually when I was at the Institute, I was fortunate enough to work at communio for a while. I was just the guy that that shipped out the books. Uh, so I guess I was the one that lobbed the bombs from the communio bunker, as it was once called. Um, for me, what became clear over the years of study, again, under David L. Schindler, may he rest in peace, was um, really reuniting theology and sanctity. 
that I think is the primary concern that cuts through whether it's Benedict's pontificate or Balthazar's scholarship or Adrienne's mysticism or de Lubac's quiet, careful historical retrievals. Um, this sense that if we want to use the word tradition or not, that the constant task of the Christian is to appropriate um, really the divine life through the wisdom of the saints and the wisdoms of scholars that, that um, animates actual encounter with the world today. There's a lot of ways to talk about that. The North American edition of Comunio in particular was about reuniting theology and culture, because that's that's really the vexed issue in this country. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it certainly became um, emblematically that under David L. Schindler's editorship. So I think I probably would uh, join with someone like Lewis Ayers and, and separate Comunio theology from Ressourcement theology. Um, I really hesitate, and I know this is actually a debate kind of within the JP2 Institute itself, I really hesitate to call Comunio a school of thought because I think in some sense um, that's a little bit antithetical, at least to its origins of just always maintaining a living contact with, with sources, with saints, with scholarship, with, with the living communion that is the church that, um, that could potentially change everything you do in every moment. I, I think in particular of, of von Balthasar's painful decision to leave the Jesuits because of the sudden reception of a new mission that was carefully discerned, but but was sudden nonetheless. Um, that is sort of communio in action, but I don't wanna call that a school. And one of the reasons I don't wanna call that a school in that sense is that I don't think Balthasar's decision is for everyone. Um, I think the danger of calling it a sort of school is that you set up uh, epigons. Um, communio is not David Schindler. It is characterized in in large part by David Schindler, and we all have to be grateful for that and 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 have much to learn from him and and have things that we continue to unfold. But in some sense, it's um, it ought to be seen as a charism, I think, or or and not so much yes. as a, a movement in the life of the church, but a charism necessary for living theology. Um, and there's a lot to be said here. I mean, Schindler's Schindler's observation, you know, the the death of monasticism in Europe led to all these sorts of dissolutions that eventually generated America as a place that didn't have sort of the, the primal of Catholic faith come over, come over here. And so, you know, everything with, with uh, spirit of capitalism in America and all, all of that is, is of a piece for Schindler because he's always trying to see that, that united vision of things. And I would separate it from resourcement in the sense that I think resourcement is more of a set of uh, scholarly behaviors that dictate um, yes. okay, good. the way by which scholarship is done. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, well, and maybe folks would get mad at me for that, but communio, I would love to see as a charism and resourcement as a real sort of approach to scholarship. Yeah. Well, I, that, I yeah, that's an interesting distinction because, uh, you know, resourcement has always seemed to me to be kind of linked to a neo-patristic revival. Uh, yes. which did not, was Christian, which, yeah. which they are, uh, which Christian, uh, yeah, uh, and the Christian series and, uh, and all of De Lubac and Danielu's very careful work in that regard. 
uh, in the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, and I, I quickly add that it was not in any way, shape or form meant as an effort to do to marginalize Thomas Aquinas or to set him aside or to say we, we can no longer use Aquinas. We simply need to be like the Orthodox and sort of uh, pay more attention to those first seven, eight centuries of the church and, and leave it at that. It was actually, in my opinion, an attempt to retrieve Aquinas as well uh, to to resituate Aquinas within his Platonic and patristic uh, patrimony, and not just the fact that he also his genius was that he brought Aristotle into the conversation, but others were doing that as well. It wasn't just Aquinas that was bringing Aristotle into the equation. Some Muslims uh, were as well, uh, but he was the preeminent Catholic that was doing that. Uh, but there has been a tendency to focus on Aquinas's Aristotelianism uh, at, to the detriment of his more patristic and Platonic elements. Uh, and in that regard, I think that Ressourcement was characterized deeply by a patristic revival that also sought to resituate uh, Thomas Aquinas and then even later the Baroque tradition, yeah. the commentatorial tradition, and, and so on. And that put them, of course, at odds with the neo-scholastics uh, of the 20th century. Uh, and of course, the resource one here, I'm doing all the talking, uh, but I, and then I'm going to come back to your view of communio as a charism, because I find that interesting. But resource mod also uh, drew deeply from the well of uh, a renewed scriptural scholarship. Uh, and they sought to, in a sense, use modern methods of biblical scholarship without falling into the pitfalls and traps of certain enlightenment paradigms of essentially, especially 19th century Protestant scholarship, yeah. which of course the modernists so-called uh, fell into that trap of paying too much attention to people like Harnack and so on. Uh, and, and so there was this attempt to retrieve uh, a non-proof texty, <laughs> decontextualized, dehistoricized approach to scripture. And then they wanted to reroute the scriptures in, the, in their proper history. And that was part of the patristic and scriptural retrieval and, and all that. So anyway, that's my nutshell of Ressourcement uh, for people. Uh, and But I want to come back. That, did, before we go back to Comunio, do you think that aptly characterizes the, what, what Ressourcement as a kind of a sort of school of thought? Oh yeah, yeah, I do, and and it's it's clear that you know all of the foundational figures of Comunio were major players in that movement. They they cut their teeth on that either directly through their schooling or through the schooling they gave themselves and the work they did together. I think, in particular, Balthazar's monographs on on Nyssa, on Maximus, on yeah, all of that. So all of that's true. Yeah, I think I think the the sense in which I want to take the the Comunio as a charism thing is. Well, it's something that you always saw at the at the study circles, and that we see here in our students, and that I saw in the readership when I worked at Comunio. Namely, that Comunio is not just for scholars; it's written right. by scholars for sure, but it's emphatically not a scholarly journal in the typical sense. And that's seen in one sense that uh, you know Comunio doesn't bother to do the to put their stuff in the same scholarly databases. It's not; it doesn't exist as a tool to be used for research, although many of us do do that. But it's really about um, human and spiritual formation, and in that sense, it's it's for stay-at-home moms more than it is for an ivory tower professor. And I think, um, I, I think therein lies the danger of of allowing Comunio to simply be seen of as a school, 
that would generate the sense in which you have to like have certain scholarly chops to be a member yeah, when in yeah. fact it's, it's really yeah. Like, <clears throat> yeah i think that's a good uh, a good way I mean? of putting it i mean there are there are obviously uh densely scholarly articles in uh in communio i think of like david l schindler's 60 page long dense metaphysical tomes that actually probably most sort of average lay people who would pick up Comunio would not be able to negotiate without great difficulty. But then also, in almost every issue, I mean, you're, you're going to find people who have articles in there who, you know, are, are like my friend uh, Colin Miller, who is obviously a scholar, uh, yeah. but, but he's also a Catholic worker. And uh, I know Colin, and, and his last article in Comunio was, was excellent. And I, you know, I've had articles in Comunio. One was on Dorothy Day on precarity. That certainly wasn't scholarly. It was just me venting my spleen and <laughs> talking about why. The best you is about, is about chickens. No, that's that's, that's right. Thing. That's right. That uh, uh, I was angry that my chickens had stopped laying eggs. And uh, it seemed to be the result of a corporate decision make uh, on their part. And I opined that maybe chickens are capable of such corporate decision making since I have seen evidence of it. I don't know what what possible link I can't even remember now I made to some deeper point with 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 that example. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's I think the point was uh we impose on on the natural world our own expectations and get angry when the natural world doesn't respond to those expectations when in fact my chickens were just being chickens, just being chickens and yeah. and and you know they didn't meet my industrial standards uh, and so i made some point about that anyway so you're right communio has more meditative things contemplative things poetic things uh and uh, cultural criticism sorts of things so in many ways yeah and you bring up the communio study circles uh that we had at the sales university and and if i may digress just a bit but it's not a digression because it makes your point when uh i started at the sales in 1994 i started the communio study circle and it didn't it didn't get a whole lot of traction for some reason uh but then when rodney hauser showed up he and i tag teamed and we decided we were going to sort of re energize the thing and at first we just we wanted deep intellectual conversation among scholars and mm -hmm. so we invited theology professors and other related professorial scholars on the campus of the sales to join us in discussing there and there were two or three other scholars from other departments who showed up but the first meetings were like six or seven people discussing discussing something from you know maybe a david schindler or stratford caldicott or something like that but then here here's what happened a few students the better students smart students got wind of what we were doing and so they asked can we perhaps come to and so we decided yes by invitation we can invite some of our better students to join us in the conversation and they did and they were great contributors but then they said well we have friends who are interested in coming to this as well, because they've heard about what's going on. Can we bring some of our friends? And we said, well, uh, okay, let's make it open-ended. Anybody can come who wants to come. And so as, eventually, long story short, within just a few short years, what began as a meeting of like six ivory tower scholars in one of our homes ended up being major, uh, major social events where it was not at all uncommon to have 40 undergraduates and professors jammed into Hauser's living room, my living room, you know, uh, Steve Lachlan's place, whatever. 
And, you know, we would stay there till two o'clock in the morning and we'd talk about the article for a couple of hours and then we'd retire for, you know, drinks and snacks. And we would talk until one, two, three o'clock in the morning uh, about all matters theological. And it was I mean, as you can attest, it was just magic. It was like a magical 10 years before I ruined it all by quitting. <laughs> yeah, and moving on to my stupid farm things. But anyway, I, yeah, I'm not giving you an opportunity to speak, but it's just my way of, of saying there was a charism yeah. involved in what was going on there. And it was the charism of Comunio, where people from all walks of life and of differing intellectual capacities were able to contribute to this deep and profound conversation that was going on. When we were preparing for the Comunio Conference here, a lot of our preparation, we did a lot of lead up, but uh, the main preparation at first among the faculty was to read the foundational documents of Comunio, like the charter right. documents and also right. the reflective pieces. And, and one thing that really struck with us and, and animated our discourse and, and animated the conference in, in a really great way that I'll share in a moment is um, Ratzinger had an article reflecting on, I think, the 20th or the 25th anniversary of Comunio. And his central question in that was really, have we been bold enough in our uh, in our encounter with the church and the world? Like, have we allowed the church to infuse culture in such a way that so on and so forth? And and for us, that was really decisive because we were seeing uh, in Ratzinger, again, the originator of this journal, which does require um Yes, certain chops to read and 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 typically a community to really unpack the full meaning when when the articles are good. Yes, yes. Um, this this unity of the 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 pastoral and the theological, as where Rothinger's concern is, have we been bold enough? But Comunio had a purpose of generating a space for you know encounter to use you know CL language in particular. When we when we had the conference here at St. Bernard's, uh, one of the keynote speakers was Father Jacques Survey who's the rector of the Casa Balthazar. Listeners may or may not know In that. Rome, in Rome, yes. In Rome, yeah, a, a close protege of, of von Balthazar, a devotee, uh, and and really the the steward of his and Adrian von Speyer's thought and legacy. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was was one of the chief founders of Casa Balthazar, which is a house of, of formation. And in, anyway, when we knew Father Seve was for sure coming, we we asked him more or less if he would kind of give a packet of stuff to, to Pope Benedict, just to let him know that the conference was happening. And and we also kind of boldly invited, you know, if, by the way, your holiness, if you wanted to say something, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and we ended up receiving um, a letter from Archbishop Gonsfein, uh, um, that, wow. that the following, which, and Father Survey, he was kind of tricksy about this. He, uh, we weren't expecting any announcements at mass, but at the end of the mass at which Father Survey presided, he pulls out his phone and we're all, you know, what's going on. And then he reads this letter and, and we're all weeping, but um there's some words here that I think are really decisive. So this is for, this is in Gonsvine's pen. Um, Pope Emeritus Benedict has commissioned me to tell you that he doesn't feel able anymore to write, quote, something sensible uh, regarding the initiative for the 50th anniversary of the magazine. <clears throat> you may let it be known that he was informed about this initiative and that he was really pleased about it. He wishes the academic act a good success and all participants a healthy sentire cum ecclesia and the courage to serve the faith in Jesus Christ and the church through thinking, writing, and witnessing. So Sentire Cum Ecclesia, a, a thinking with the church and, and a witnessing to the love of Christ through thinking, writing, and, and, and witnessing. And for us, obviously, that was a beautiful moment. There wasn't a dry eye in the room to receive uh, words. However, oh, man, I'm choking up, and I just, you know, 
you know i wasn't even there i didn't realize that this was well, red yeah you know great. we framed this we've we've wept over it it's amazing we're really thrilled to receive it but for us that was also it, it was in some sense a confirmation that our hunch about communio as a as a phenomenon and not just as the north american journal uh that really just encounter with the life of christ whether that's through a retrieval of scholarship or through the actual integrity of a holy person in the world that's that's really the mission of, of communio and for us, you know, I work here at a school of theology and ministry, and we do diaconate and pre-theologate formation and also lay theological programs that that animates everything, the the unity of theology and sanctity. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, absolutely. That's what animates what I'm saying. <clears throat> the the yeah. unity. And of course, uh, for the listeners, there there is a very um, there's a famous essay from by von Balthasar on the called Theology and Sanctity. Yes. It is in one of the volumes of explorations in theology you would probably know which volume so i could maybe two, i think, I think it's i don't have it here on my this is these are some of my uh remainder books that's not my main library so maybe because i think it would be important because we're talking about this as the coming together of theology and sanctity okay so it's in volume one Okay, uh, of explorations in theology. And by the way, I often get queries from people who are, in fact, interested in Balthazar's theology. Where where do I begin? And I would say, well, one thing, one way you can begin is mm. by instead of trying to wade through his his entire trilogy, or sort of stepping into the middle of the stream uh, by you know, oftentimes his smaller works presume that you know his broader work and so yeah. by reading his smaller works you're sort of stepping into the middle of the stream and, and not really knowing the forest for the trees to, to mix my metaphors but those books explorations in theology i think five volumes are a collection of essays on all kinds of different topics so you can pick and choose what might interest you uh, the most in trying to understand balthazar's uh, point of view and wonderful article in their theology and sanctity there was also an article he wrote, which was in Communio. And once again, I don't have it at my thing. If I did any kind of research for these things, it'd be a miracle <laughs> for these interviews. Uh, uh, but he wrote uh, a famous article called The Fathers, the Scholastics, you know, and ourselves. That was yeah. in Communio. I can't remember which volume of Communio. Go to the Communio webpage. I'm sure you'll find it there somewhere. Uh, just type in author index, hit Balthazar, you know, and you, you'll find oh. it on there. And one of the things that article does is points out that, you know, he goes through, he goes, each era of theology in the history of the church has had its strengths and weaknesses, of course. And then he talks about the, the church fathers. They were glorious and all that, but they were a bit hamstrung by a kind of platonic hangover here and there that uh, sort of kept them kept them from the full range of understanding. But then the medievals come along and Aquinas and so on. And he he's very favorably disposed towards Aquinas as boy. There was an increase in precision, definitions, uh, wonderful and so on. But then he goes on to say, look, there was a downside to it. And the downside was now theology has moved from a monastic setting into a university setting. And the entire format of the Summa is geared towards that question and answer teaching method in a university. And so what is gained in precision is sort of there's there's a loss of the mystical 
element, not in Aquinas as such, but then right. his epigones, to use a word you used earlier, his epigones come along and uh, they focus in on all the Aristotelian deductive kind of syllogistic sort of thing. But and they lose the mystical side that Aquinas actually had. Uh, the, the delving into revelation as first and foremost, a kind of mystery, not all, but, but many. Uh, and so my point is, is he, that's a great article and entryway too for getting at how Balthazar believes this divorce between spirituality and theology happened historically between sanctity and theology. And so, yeah, the Comunio project, it seems to me, I agree with you hundred percent, Danny, that it is about bringing back together theology and sanctity. But on a concrete, and I'm going to put you on the spot, a question you maybe aren't, aren't anticipating. I'm going to put you on the spot and say, what, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to bring theology and sanctity back together? Does it mean I sit down and say, oh, Lord, we beseech thee, give me brilliant ideas in my theology, amen, you know, before you write or something, or you'd say 10 rosaries a day before you you start writing anything? Uh, well, obviously, I'm, I'm joking here, but it brings it raises a real question. What did what did Ratzinger mean by that? What did Balthazar mean by that? Well, in some sense, this is where my instinct then is to look at uh, the pontificates of John Paul II and Pope Benedict and of, of Francis as well as as receptions of the Second Vatican Council's universal call to holiness. Yes. In particular, what comes immediately to mind is John Paul II's insistence uh, in in Familiaris Consortio and, and other places that. Um, you know, the family needs to become what it is. Family, become who you are. Um, in the sense that um, because the universal call to holiness is true, that in some sense, there's no super added thing that, that let's say, a, a, a mom or a factory line worker or whatever needs to do in order to be ready for holiness, right? Like, just your call in the world is obviously the place where the Lord has placed you where sanctification can happen. Um, and you know, I, Francis yes, yes. is my patron saint and, and he's very much, you know, find just a bit of time in the day. And if you can't find 15 minutes, take an hour instead. Um, obviously that's not realistic yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where possible, of course. Yeah. Tap into the church's liturgy. My wife and I give a shot at doing liturgy of the hours, but it's hit and miss. Um, but that's because our child takes priority and that's that's where the holiness is so sanctification in your actual state of life is is the way that that's achieved um yeah, like yeah. i said i work at a school that that does uh, human and spiritual formation along with the academic formation so we're very focused on um are you normal are you well adjusted can you speak to women do you creep people out like that stuff's really important <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> exactly that, is the holiness well, i creep everybody out so Right. My yeah. viewers aren't creeps. I'm a creep. So. <laughs> so what's it mean? Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's also the question that that like Schindler and, and Hanby receive from people after every talk they give, which is what are we going to do? Oh, um, yeah. What's your plan? What's your program? What's your strategy? Right. That yeah. drives me. That drives me crazy. And uh, on and, the one hand, it's the most important question. And on the other hand, it's lame because the answer is always the same. Like you have to be holy before anything else can happen. Yeah. And That's I it. can't tell you what that looks like. No, it looks you like you. To, yeah. It looks like whatever your life is and where you discern the movement of, of God's Holy spirit in your life, directing you uh, in vocational directions and imposing upon you a certain moral awareness of what must be done uh, at any given moment. 
Uh, yeah, and it's, it's but people are always looking for broad ecclesiastical stratagems uh, rather than simply. And this is my constant hobby horse, right? The universal cult to holiness and that we don't need more synods on synods on synods. We don't need more stratagems. We don't need meetings on meetings. You know, we don't need more bureaucratic chair shuffling. Uh, we need an increase in holiness. And that sounds trite. That sounds cliche. And it goes, it's like water off a duck's back when people hear that. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, you, you, we got to be holy. I, I got that. But what are we going to do? And, well, you know, I'm obviously caricaturing some of these questions. No, that's, and I don't... that's the point. The point is that uh, we all suck at least a little bit. And that's where you have to start. That's yeah, really well, you start with your own sins. You, you're, you do spiritual reading, uh, do an examination of conscience, make frequent use of the sacraments. Uh, to, I often equate sanctity with simply a certain kind of brutal honesty with yourself and combined with sanity. In fact, I'm, I'm presenting a paper at Ave Maria University in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to be talking about Dorothy Day and sanctity and all these sorts of things. And I, and I make the observation then in a world gone mad, and our ha ours has, right? Because we now live in a world that thinks men can get pregnant and women can have penises, and uh, right? Uh, so we live in this wacky, crazy, irrational world. Sanctity is going to take the form of sanity, <laughs> just a fundamental intelligence that one of the ways that we can live a sanctified existence in the world is to educate ourselves properly as Catholics in order to by, by doing a lot of reading and, and introspection and, and examination of conscience and spiritual growth so that one can in simply regain a certain equilibrium of sanity that in our world today is sanctity because it requires heroism today to be yep. sane because you're going you're gonna to be dumped upon by everybody if all you do is say, uh, I don't think a man can get pregnant. And all of a sudden you're fired from your position at XYZ. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, I am I'm, I'm, I'm my long winded way of saying, yeah, I agree with you. Um, it's it, it's not we're not saying that holiness is idiosyncratic to each and every individual in some sort of completely unique way, because there are going to be broadly analogous. I mean, parents of all stripes are going to share some broad common Sort right. of theme, right. And, in and scripture parents. is God's word for everyone. That's the first place to look for discerning the will of God for you. Like all those things are true, but you are called to holiness in particular. There's not a general call. The, the universal call is also particular. And I think that's what's often missed when people hear universal yeah. call. Holiness. Yeah. And, and to that extent, it's important to, in a sense, demystify sanctity mm -hmm. uh, by, you know, in a sense, taking it off the holy cards and the, and taking it out of the realm of uh, hyperbolic hagiography and into the realm of day-to-day saying -day, when you actually read the lives of the saints i mean real biographies of the lives of the saints then you begin to realize that they had all of the problems that everybody else has uh and yeah some of them performed miracles and levitated and all kinds of crazy stuff That's uh that's and and you point. might and the thing is though the lesson from that isn't oh my goodness in order to be holy I have to levitate, uh, but the lesson from that is if I am holy I damn well might levitate. <laughs> so, uh, be ready for that. I've never levitated myself. Uh, all two hundred pounds of me would have a hard time getting off the ground, uh, <laughs> and I would land with a thud. 
when I realized that I wanted a bourbon and then boom, the bubble would be burst and no right. more, no more mysticism. The reason you can't bilocate is because you would just drink with the other body. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord withholds for certain reasons. Yeah. Pa- Padre Pio was famous for bilocation, but he didn't bilocate so he could be at two bars at yeah, the same that's time. That's one place confession and the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we jest and joke, but I think we've got the, the gist of it here. Uh, that holiness is uh, something that's going to pertain to uh, I just got to I'm sorry, I was waiting for that. I got a little email from somebody I was waiting for. Uh, so now I'm going to be grossly distracted, but I have to focus on the task at hand here. All right. So. Um, so I, I want to go back to the idea of communio as a charism and bringing theology and sanctity together more than a specific theological method, because in some ways, from what I heard and what I followed, uh, your conference in St. Bernard's kind of brought this out in a, in a sort of uh, backhanded way by the fact that there were representatives there of the French communio, not just the American, North American communio, the French communio. And, and, and people who are familiar with French communio understand that it has a very different theological uh, perspective. I mean, someone like a Jean-Luc Marion and his God without being and his belief yep. that theology can proceed without an elaborate metaphysic would be very contrary to the view of, of David L. Schindler, David C. Schindler and, and you and, and people like. So it's not as if there's a sort of school here into which everyone is fitting. Right. Yeah, that was uh, that was the most interesting thing about our conference, I think, now looking back on it. I mean, first of all, to say that we had invited David L. Schindler as a keynote and then and then the health issues to which he eventually succumbed uh, kept him from attending. There was there was a tribute and we heard from from Father Fessio and from Nick Healy. But uh, yeah, it ended up actually to be the case that um, besides Margaret McCarthy, who presented here, the sort of uh, North American representation of Comunio was was lacking. And so it became it was kind of a decidedly French thing, which none of us were expecting because we had Jean-Luc Marion here to give a presentation. We had Father Jacques Servet, who is Belgian and, and lives in Italy, but he feels very French and, and that's his accent as well. And then uh, Jean Duchesne, who's the literary executor right. for Louis Bouillet. Um, and part of the charm of the conference was that um, those guys were all friends. And when they weren't attending papers, they were they were chummed up together and just reminiscing and telling stories. But part of what we we saw was that the global thing that is communio that that you know started in Rome but became a, a multifaceted thing um, had at least the beginning a general focus on um, the, the church's genuine encounter with the world, right? A, a genuine openness to the world that was properly called for through a, a correct reading of Gaudium et Spes. Uh, and in France, that took a different form than it needed to take in North America. And it's true that because Schindler wasn't there, there was probably, there were probably, there were subtle critiques that the French were making about North America that went unanswered that I think all of us would have loved to have had a little bit more of an encounter about. There was a sense in which um, Schindler wasn't there to defend himself. And, and that was unfortunate. And we, we certainly missed him for that. But it was interesting, though. I mean, Marion, I'm not as familiar with his thought. I've, I've read a bit, God Without Being, and a, and a few other things. And and meeting him was a, was a whole trip. He was never not not smoking. Um, oh, he's still smoking. I met him like 20 years ago, and he was like, oh, we had, I mean, we had to like ask him to leave the building multiple times because he kept smoking in places with low seat. Anyway, um, <laughs> what was interesting was that even someone like Jean, so Jean-Luc Marion and Jean Duchesne, for example, this is a story that came out that I heard through Gene Schlesinger, who was here. Um, 
they were so close with Henri de Lubac that when de Lubac was named a cardinal, Marion and Duchesne personally paid for his first set of reds. That's how in with the start of Comunio that those guys were. I mean, despite despite the what might be massive differences now. Yeah, um, can I interrupt for a second? Please do. They yeah. had to they had to buy his reds because the Jesuits wouldn't. Yeah, right, right. What does that tell you about the Jesuits, right? Okay, spiteful little things. Uh, but anyway, I, I I digress. Go ahead. Well, Father Survey said, because I, I had the, the privilege of accompanying Father Survey while he was here, and when I was dropping him off at the airport, he he said a, a number of really touching and interesting things, including showing me Balthazar's personal rosary, which he keeps on him, which was really cool. Wow. Uh, but Father Survey said that that our conference had a real feeling of friendship, which was true to the original Comunio initiative. So all of those guys, again, you know, 50 years ago when they were younger men and their their disagreements weren't as published uh, or as severe, um, but the, that we had retrieved something of of the the origin there. And that that to us was was the most important thing that came out of the conference was that we gathered an international group and did one thing together, which was think with the church. And that that to us was the real sort of Comunio. That's that great. Yeah. And um, that brings up, uh, you said earlier, you know, that uh, we, we talked about how uh, sort of Comunio is characterized by trying to bring back together theology and sanctity. But you hit upon another very major theme uh, that characterizes Comunio, and that is, and it also characterizes race source mont theology to an extent. So there's overlap, which is encountering the world. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, and you also said something else, which is important, which involves a proper interpretation of Gaudium et Spes, uh, rather than the improper uses Gaudium et Spes was put to for a false sense of aggiornamento as simply importing secular, modern, liberal concepts in, into the church. One, I, I, I defy anyone, and a lot of traditionalists critique Gaudium et Spes for being ambiguous and it opened the door to all this. And I, I challenge anyone to actually go and read Gaudium et Spes. I mean, really read it and yeah. then come away with the conclusion that what it was calling for was for the church to simply capitulate to modernity. That's that's just risibly stupid on a, on a monumental level. And quite frankly, it's mendacious. Anybody that reads the document and comes away with that has an, has an ideological axe to grind and an agenda uh, that, that is, that is very untoward. And, yeah. and, and the fact is Gaudium et Spes is the product of resource month thinking. It very much is in its call for the church to encounter the world and, and, and to engage the world, which means that, you know, you, you the, obviously there's a lot of modern philosophy and a lot of modern ideas and a lot of modern things in, in culture that the church cannot accept. And we just sort of mentioned that there are things we cannot accept. However, the Catholic engagement with the world cannot simply fall back into a sort of syllabus of errors approach or simply a, a scholastic deductivism that says, here's why all this stuff is wrong. Here's why all this garbage is wrong. <laughs> error, 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 error. When there, we've corrected the errors. Aquinas reigns supreme. Let's move on. Uh, that is obviously not a way to engage the world. Right, right. Uh, so I'm going to say this, and I'll let you talk. Take, for example, Henry de Lubac. Henri de Lubac, the Jesuit, who was sort of one of the founding fathers of Resource Month. He wrote a very famous book that I would recommend to my viewers and listeners, The Drama of Atheist Humanism. 
and you probably have it on your shelf. It was one of the teaching seminal it, works of, of, yeah, of my own. Gosh, I read it in my early 20s while in minor seminary. It changed my life. And what De Lubach is doing there is scoping out a kind of theological anthropology rooted in Christ. He's he's scoping out a Christian humanism rooted in Christ. And the reason why he's doing that is now, okay, he's confronting then modernity. He's confronting the turn to subjectivity and the supposed uh, humanism of modernity by engaging people, you know, like August Comte and Nietzsche and, 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 a, whole, and a whole host of others. And the essence of what he is saying is this, we don't need to run from humanism as Catholics, because we have the deeper humanism. We have the better humanism. So let's simply out humanist the humanists. Okay. Let's, yep. let's give the, let's engage the world. Let's listen to them. Let's read their humanistic construals of what really is real and important. And let's take it seriously. And then let's counter propose a Christological theological anthropology as the deeper answer to the problematic that they that they bring us. That to me is in a nutshell what communio theology is all about. You don't flee from the world and you don't simply reject it in a series of deductive no's. You you encounter you encounter it authentically and honestly and engage it in real in real conversation. So anyway, I'm I'm on a well, diatribe. No, I, I, um, the Last semester, I taught a, a 16 week course where we just read the four major constitutions of Vatican II. And we did we did some history for each one. We did some reception for each one, each one and, and some context as well. Besides the main task was just to read the documents, the whole text and the overwhelming sentiment for each of them. But but for the class as a whole from the students was Vatican II was beautiful. What the hell happened? Because none of the errors I've experienced and these were largely younger students. Uh, mid you know young mid 20s to, to early 30s usually um the overwhelming sentiment was like I, what i see in my parish was not written in this council so obviously something else happened and for me that was so uh, invigorating uh, first of all because it meant that we had we had read the texts well but it was also the case that um there's a real gift here in the council that frankly is just not yet unfolded we had two massively holy pontificates that that uh, that have gone and concluded that uh, attempted to unfold the council. I think Francis is still unfolding the council in his own way, which is a, another topic. But um, nevertheless, what's there in the council is is a dynamo that's still, as it were, going off or yes. needs to, anyway. Yeah, as Balthazar says in in raising the bastions, the the real key to encounter is is quote the explosive power of holiness, and that's exactly what the council says or calls for the explosive power of holiness. I mean, and, and this is personal to me because. I mean, I started my blog. It's called Gaudium et Spes 22. And of yep. course, section 22 begins with the famous line, you know, only in the light of the, you know, the mystery of God made man in the incarnation does, you know, in the light of Christ does the mystery of man take on light. Uh, and, and that's repeated uh, that variations on that theme are repeated throughout Gaudium et Spes. So clearly Gaudium et Spes is carving out a theological anthropology rooted in a Christocentrism as the answer uh, to modernity. Now, does Gaudium et Spes have flaws? Yes, it does. All councils have flaws. They all have blind spots. And, you know, I, I, I do think the council fathers were guilty, perhaps, of a slight naivete about uh, the toxicity of the modern world and perhaps should have written a bit more on uh, we need to be cautious as we move forward. And the best reader of that is Ratzinger. That's clear. He was the first and the loudest voice to say, like, this wasn't enough. We should have been a little more careful. Here were the errors I saw in the drafting. But nevertheless, here's how to receive this thing. 
Yes, exactly. And, and the thing is, uh, we did have two pontificates in John Paul and Benedict that uh, gave us a profound hermeneutic of how to retrieve these documents. And these were from two dudes that were there. In fact, Wojtyla was uh, he had a hand in, in the drafting of Gaudium et Spes and in particular Gaudium et Spes 22. Uh, and so to say, well, he didn't understand the council is just is, is nonsense. And he quoted that line from Gaudium et Spes 22 frequently in almost all of his encyclicals. Uh, and so the question does remain, given the fact that the council, when you actually read it honestly, does not approve of the nonsense that came later, yeah. sanction it. Nor did the pontificates of John Paul and Benedict. Paul VI is a different matter, but neither did the pontificates of John Paul and Benedict. Then what in the heck happened? What went wrong? Uh, my own take is this. What we witnessed was a massive, an absolutely massive dereliction of duty on the part of the theological guild mm -hmm. in the Catholic world. A massive dereliction of duty on the part of the theological guild and that the theological guild didn't run they raced towards modernity and and then it trickled down from there to people who say theology is irrelevant theology doesn't matter one of the reasons why we got the craziness we did after the council is because crazy theology trickled down mm -hmm. you know into seminaries to priests and so on and it was a message that everybody was it was easy they wanted to hear hey we don't have to do any of that stuff anymore we can do we can we can do we can do this other stuff how cool is that you know and anyway i digress i digress so that's great uh that you 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 read all those documents and and i think communio uh and resourcement theology obviously are a big part of those documents and and uh so in other words, that, that's where I take my stand. I'm one of those who says, I agree with you completely, Danny, that it's not that the council has been tried and found wanting. You know, it's, it's just really hasn't even really been tried yet. And, and I think a lot of it is because it hasn't been understood. Um, anyway, you want to say anything to that before we move on? No, I have a good segue to the next part, which is about uh, retrieving things in encounters with extra ecclesial figures. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, in some sense, my my interest in encountering the thought of of David Bentley Hart in dialogue with von Balthasar is that uh, I don't think Catholics have to be afraid of of these questions and even the answers no. that, that Hart gives. But there's I interviewed there's Hart. I I love David Hart. I mean, I have disagreements I, with him, but he's he's an interesting fellow. Yeah, I I um, and by the way, I've been on the receiving end of some of his diatribes, uh, and and so I say that as somebody I'm who is eyes wide open to the fact that David can be prickly. Let's just put it that way, a, a bit yeah. prickly. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I I like the guy, and uh, he he throws down a challenge that we shouldn't be afraid of. Let's let's meet it. Let's talk about it. Go ahead. Yeah. I've not I, well, I've not read anything of his that's not uh, edifying to me in some way, and in particular, um. There's the little book, uh, um, The Doors of the Sea, Where Was God in the Tsunami? That, oh, yeah. as, as a text of theodicy, is, I think it's essential reading. I also think it should be essential reading for Thomists. I mean, it's really powerful in terms of, of what it says about, what it says about a particular person to think certain things about God's responsibility and permission of evil. I think it's really, it's really piercing in, in that way. Um, but anyway, so we're talking yeah. about the tsunami following the huge yeah, earthquake in the South Sri Pacific Lanka yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sri Lanka, Thailand, and a few other places. Yeah. 
300,000 dead. Uh, he, he wrote in response to that, you know, what, uh, yeah. what explanations can be given. And what I appreciate about Hart, um, many things, but what I appreciate about that argument is his insistence. Um, he, he reads the Odyssey through the brothers Karamazov and in particular, Ivan Karamazov. And there's, there's a right. lot to say. And I'm not a master of, of Dostoevsky, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't tread there so much, but, but Hart's insistence is that, um, there's no reason for evil. And it's precisely part of the pain of experiencing evil is that we have this sense of like wanting to search for reasons for things, but as a sort of black hole in reality, he says at one point, um, it, it's simply a, a, a no thing. And it's an illogic such that trying to, to ascribe a reason for what happened to either God's intention or permission, in fact, as it were, misses the point of, of experiencing a, a sort of sheer, a sheer nothing. And to me, that's such a, that's such a piercing read of, um, of evil being a, a problem sort of absolutely, that evil is, is, uh, is just as much an issue for, for God as it is for man in some sense, because it's, and also because evil originates with us, you can kind of get away with, with saying that, um, at any rate, yeah, you, you yep, may have yep. some, some questions for for my work in particular. Well, yeah, 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 okay. So let's get to um, to this interfacing of 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 Balthazar and David Hart on the issue of universal salvation. Obviously, uh, Balthazar's book "Was dürfen wir hoffen," which should be translated, "What are we allowed to hope for?" Rather than "Dare we hope," as if it's some bold theological stab at being provocative. Uh, he's asking already. Yeah, what's that? Well, when when it's titled "Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved," I mean the the question is answered in its in its asking, and that's that's part of the the Balthazar's approach in Vasdurf and Verhoeven. Verhoeven is is much more um, this question of salvation is a is a decidedly personal one, and in fact, uh, yeah, some of what I, uh, I I'd like to talk about is is. Uh, when and where we're supposed to think about hell and damnation, because that's not just a, a loosey goosey thing in the life of the church. There's proper ecclesial moments for thinking through those questions. I also just want to say for your listeners, um, frequently what's mentioned when, when universalism is mentioned and Balthazar comes up is, is dare we hope that all men be saved. And I have to say, having read everything from him on the question of eschatology and on the question of hell. Yes. And that's my least favorite thing, actually. That, that Well, yeah, topic. it's way downstream of his more substantive stuff on the descent into hell, the it's, Christological right. foundations of salvation, which you find that. Theodrama, three, four, five. I mean, yeah. good grief. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a couple of short essays and explorations in theology. There's one eschatology in outline. The best thing, uh, there's parts in prayer. And uh, and there's this short discourse on hell, which I think is probably the most valuable thing. And and thankfully, the the second edition from Ignatius of Darius has the short has discourse it. on hell at the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, but a long story short, what what Balthazar scopes out is that uh, is is a Christology, and it's a Christology rooted in the idea of a divine kenosis which has its grounding already in Trinitarian relations. And it's too complex to go into all of the theology of the Trinitarian relations as to why, for example, it was most appropriate that the sun should become incarnate and, and, and all of that. But it, it was missional. Uh, the sun was sent uh, into the world in order to do the Father's will, to carry it out. And that involved the descent all the way down into the full dregs of human perdition all the way into hell. So why don't you pick it up there? Please describe the Christological foundations for Balthazar's notion of 
Christ's descent into hell, and then describe why it is hell is actually a Christological category. Sure, sure. Let me, um, do you mind if I just read a little bit of something? Oh, no, please, please do, because that's, uh, that's very yeah. precise. One, uh, there's a lot of sins committed against Balthazar in scholarship. Um, the main one, in my opinion, is severing his relationship with Adrian von Speyer. And I'll just leave that to the side for the moment. But the other um, is an attention to the sort of Ignatian heart of not just his spirituality, but his theology. And in particular, uh, Balthazar's thought is, is just thoroughly informed and shaped by uh, the rigors of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And, and what I'm about to read is, is, is a reflection on, um, on the relationship between that and, and, and the consideration of hell. So this is a selection from his book, Prayer, which Ignatius published as well. Um, it says, there's no other way of reflecting upon grave sin and its penalty, but this. Worldly reason will find the double truth unintelligible, but for faith it is quite clear. There's no alternative. For where the vitality of faith and love breaks through, we cannot be under the dominion of the fear of hell. So there's a, a first step, right? If you have faith and love, hell is not to be feared. However, however, he says, there is a point at which we absolutely must contemplate hell in all its stark reality where a living faith and a living love are introduced to the depths of the cross, where we too experience the extinction of the resurrection light and are plunged like Christ into darkness. Nor is this a suffering with Christ, i.e. in the company of Christ. Truth requires that we suffer this divorce from him, just as Peter goes out to weep in solitude his bitter tears. It is clear that hell is to be contemplated strictly as a matter which concerns me alone. As a part of the spiritual life, it belongs behind the closed door of my own room. From the standpoint of living faith, I cannot fundamentally believe in anyone's damnation but my own. As far as my neighbor is concerned, the light of resurrection can never be so obscured that I would be allowed or obliged to stop hoping for him. But even this very personal prayerful reflection on damnation is not strictly a monologue. Since it is a contemplation in faith, its dimensions are at the same time decidedly those of dialogue. Even the highly concrete and existential contemplation of hell, which Ignatius places at the end of the first week of his exercises, to be experienced with all the bodily senses, has a dialogical form. This dialogue intensified to the highest existential experience is the dark night of the soul. It is a sharing in the Lord's abandonment on the cross a participation in a love which is no longer receiving any light and hence cannot judge and distinguish. Here the conversation has finally adopted the form of a monologue devoid of all answer, but also the one who allows this night is the risen Lord. He controls its course and appoints its limits. A lot Very good. Of, uh, just some methodological points from that that I'm, that I'm drawing out of this. Um, the question of, of salvation, though it's a universal issue, is particular. And what we can be certain of um, is that our job with respect to salvation is to, is to consider, when we think about hell, only the possibility of my own damnation. And there's other texts from Balthazar that just for the sake of time, I won't read. The sense of which is that um, I know that sin is real because I've committed it. And I know that hell is real because I've committed sins that merit, that not just merit, but in themselves cause a separation, which is hellish, hellacious, so on. Yeah and so forth, right? Those are the certain realities. 
I also know and should realize that when I look on the cross of Christ, I see one who has been crucified and died specifically for me. And you can read the institution of the Eucharist, but also Christ's whole life as, as pro nobis in that sense. And what I learned in that encounter of the certainty of, of hell is something that I've merited. The, the command that we get from Balthazar here to, to see Christ on the cross and to think of these two things is that um, when we see Christ on the cross dying efficaciously for me, yes, he he defeats death and, and opens the doors to, to heaven for us, right? Um, that doesn't push me away from contemplation of hell. The real moment of transformative Christian love and growth and holiness is to take those two perspectives, Christ crucified and my certainty of my own damnation, and to wed them in the sense that my love for Christ and my sorrow for my own sins is so great that um, I'm not just going to say, thanks, Jesus, I'm off to heaven. I'm going to say, Lord, let me remain here with you in this lonely place. And so for me, and there's a lot to say here and a whole dissertation's worth, of course, but for me, the sort mm -hmm. of aspect of this from discipleship or from a human formation or spiritual formation standpoint is that the universalism debates, even though the arguments are super powerful and we can talk about that and 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 convincing in so many respects, I think this perspective from, from von Balthasar is more satisfactory in the sense that it preserves the the drama and the loneliness and 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 the cry of anguish on the cross. And it also pushes me um not so to speak, directly toward heaven and unity of bliss, but toward union with Christ. And that union looks like, even for the holiest of us, a willingness to suffer on behalf of others. And Balthazar is insistent on that in, in, Bingo. in other places, right? So what's paradoxically true here and where I think Balthazar cannot be cast aside, as Hart does, as someone who's timid and should just say he's a universalist, is that salvation is not one without the eternity of hell, which Christ experiences. And in fact, mysteriously, the saints that we do see who talk about hell, who see it, who experience it for others, are precisely the saints who want to put themselves in the breach, who want to stand in the way. And, you know, figures like Moses or figures like Catherine of Siena and so on, who 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 say, uh, "Let me suffer." Francis of Sales, in fact, right? Even if I'm damned, Lord, I will, I will, I will love you. I'll, I'll still live my life for you. The sense in which um, saints don't flee from hell, but actually go toward it with Christ. For me, that reveals that this whole, this this debate about universalism, which I think, by the way, is just getting agonizingly tiresome, especially on Twitter and the articles back and forth and, and oh, increasingly yeah. nasty diatribes. It's just, it's it's all not worth it anymore to have these discussions. What's fruitful, I think, is um, the call to discipleship is, is a call for us to experience hell with Christ. And I think what's brilliant about von Balthasar on this is that um, instead of simply massa damnata or universal salvation, it might actually be the case that everybody has to pass through hell <laughs> in yeah. some sense, whether that's in this life or whether the sort of eschatological moment of in order to pass through the gates of death, I suffer it uh, or experience Christ's suffering of it. And part of my dissertation and the other work here is that Christ's capability to suffer uh, in our place in a way deeper than we're capable of. Right. Yes, I've I've said elsewhere in many many places that one of the things that is most ignored is the cruciform nature of Christian existence. Balthazar makes this point over and over and over again. Most of the saints make this point over and over and over again. The cruciform the the constitutively cruciform nature of Christian existence, and it's very important to understand because Christ said to take up your cross and follow me. It doesn't simply mean 
oh, well, we're going to have bad things happen to us like happened to Christ. So we're going to have to suffer like like Christ suffered. And we just have to sort of white knuckle it and we'll get through it and then we'll get a reward at the end. And that's what it means to have a cruciform existence it just means we're going to suffer. No, because it has a that has a fundamentally superficial understanding of the cross of Christ's cross by a cruciform nature form of existence. It means we enter vicariously into Christ's vicarious death for, for everybody else. We enter into that dark night. We enter into that descent into hell, and we suffer on behalf of the world. We suffer right. on behalf of our brothers and sisters. But it, it, the essence, we are a priestly people. What is the essence of a priesthood? A priest intercedes. Right. right. The vocation of the Christian is intercessory. It is to suffer vicariously for others. And so I love what you just said. You know, it might be the case that we all have to pass through hell, pass through it. Well, and this is where this is where I think I'm more comfortable with Balthazar than than going the full universalist route. Although, you know, theologically, I'm certainly close with heart on these things. But where I want to stick with Balthazar is this insistence on the dramatic or if you don't like that phrase, the personal nature of this. I mean, all of what you just said is true, but I don't know if I'm going to do it. Yeah, and never simply make it. he can right. he can I don't do it. He can free it from within, but I can tell you, I didn't do it today. I didn't do it yesterday, and I have little hope outside of the grace of the confession that I'm ever going to finally fully consent to what's happening in my life. And because I don't know that, I can't say universalism is simply true. I can reasonably hope that everybody else, who I should probably think is better than me, can pull it off. That Christ that Christ will disclose their full freedom to themselves, or at the very least will we'll meet them at the bottommost limits of their loneliness. But I don't know if I'm going to do it. We are entering, we have to enter into that dark night of the soul. We have to enter into that silence of the tomb, uh, which is actually one of the theological reasons why after sin entered the equation, we have to die. Yeah. Uh, because death represents the ultimate dispossession. It, it's a gift from God, death. In, in the regime of sin and in the manner, you know, our death experienced as a kind of rupture and a horror is not. That's a result of sin. But but the gift part of it is the dispossession part, you know, and, and it, we are spending our entire lives as a training in dispossession, a training in kenosis, a training in descent into hell to prepare for that moment of a happy death where we're able to enter into the silence of the tomb al along with Christ. Yeah. Um, so I thought your paper was wonderful in terms of spelling out the, the Christological foundations of it. This is why hell in, in some ways, and we can talk about this then. Now, what does it mean then to say that hell is a Christological category? Even heaven is a Christological category that these are not. If you look at the theology of the Old Testament, as Balthazar points out, concepts of heaven and hell as places of reward and punishment show up rather late in Second Temple Judaism after exposure to uh, you know, Persians and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and so this notion that, well, there's these place, the place called heaven, a place called hell, and, and Christ came to save us from hell and take us to heaven. The fact is, these are realities that Christ creates, that in some sense, heaven and hell didn't exist before the incarnation. You want right. to comment on that? Yeah. I mean, just to say, first of all, that's why in the universalism debates, I'm not willing, both as a Roman Catholic obedient to my magisterium or whatever diatribe is is, is thrown uh, from, from certain universalists. Um, I don't want to let go of hell because um, it's eternal in Christ. He suffered it. And I, I'm not willing to say that that was just a, a transitive thing. I think it's a, a sort of permanent. 
he's resurrected with the wounds and that has to say something eschatologically beyond yeah wow the resurrected body is really mysterious like no i think that that means things for eschatological needs now with respect to, to the specifically christological question here um yeah there's a historical way to go about it there's the sort of excuse me uh, oh you're right yeah <laughs> that's not bronchitis that's just me swallowing things wrong so go ahead <laughs> The Greeks, you know, called it Hades, the shadowy underworld, the, the shadowy skanky place, as you used to call it. Um, in the yeah. Old Testament, it was called Sheol, and the meaning of that, and getting this from Ratzinger's eschatology text, the meaning of Sheol was just the, the zone of non-communication after this life, where precisely what doesn't exist is communion with God. And so when the New Testament comes along, and when Christ comes along, that is, and, and suffers death um, it, in in humanity, uniting himself to, to all natures as all of human nature, as, as uh, Second Vatican Council says, he suffers that non-communication. We say, and indeed the Apostles' Creed really only says um, he descended to the dead. He's descended to the below, yeah. to the world. Yeah. It doesn't say yeah. hell in the fiery sense. What it means, <laughs> and, and this is also my reading of Balthazar and von Speyer, what it means is that Christ suffered death in its fullness. Namely that he's gone to that place which is a non-place of non-communication and in that place of non-communication suffers it truly as as perfect man and perfect god and is resurrected by the father from that such that that place of non-communication is now the doorway to eternal life for us right then we can say with balthazar that uh now because the passageway to full communion with the divine life is open that's heaven and now, because the, the doors of death are opened, the possibility of full right. distance from God right. also open. But it's not like there was a, a chamber yeah. crack to first. Because it's only after Christ and the, the coming together of, of God, hum, of, you know, the divine humanity of Christ. Uh, so the next that... step. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, just to say that the next step then is that whatever hell is. Uh, it would have to be the possibility of a final refusal of Christ's death for me, which again, in this Balthasarian sense, hell would have to be a, an obstinate personal refusal of Christ in death dying for me. It would be that refusal to look Christ in the eye and say, Lord, thank you for dying for me. Let me do this with you, right? Um, yeah, hell, yeah. whatever hell is, would be that, and that possibility is not something Balthazar is willing to, to close off. Because again, uh, I don't know exactly. Now let's let's before we get, go, I want to go back to Hart. Yeah. But before we get to that, there are uh, critics of Balthazar's theology of the descent into hell. People like Alyssa Pitstick and others that Richard Newhouse before his death made a big deal about. Uh, Lyra Pitstick, as her friends call her. I don't know what she's up to now, but she wrote a famous book uh, essentially accusing Balthazar of heresy on this matter. Not essentially, she did accuse him of heresy on this matter. And, and, and she, she, her claim, and the claim of others, is that the tradition does not support Balthazar's take on the descent into hell, that he's being overly innovative here. Because in the tradition, there is what's called the harrowing of hell, that in a sense, Christ simply went down into the realm of the dead to Sheol in order to retrieve the righteous patriarchs and prophets and so on from, uh, you know, from the Old Testament to retrieve those righteous ones for heaven. So essentially, he, he, the images of, you know, Christ is like, Liam Neeson, and you know, I have a very particular set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare for people like right. you. 
Satan. All right. And he slaps Satan around and now get out of here, the rest of you. And <laughs> off they go, you know, and and the, the, I'm obviously spoofing it. But that that's that's the sort of image, a sort of strong man. Christ busts in the doors of Sheol, smacks right. Satan in the face and grabs the righteous ones and take him up into heaven. OK, so that's that's the sort of tradition, according to people like Pitstick and Balthazar in saying that that Christ suffers the pains of the hell of the damned is heretical. What what say ye to that accusation? I think it's wrong. I think Oaks's response to Pitstick were, were yes. more than sufficient when they happened over on First Things, although that's not um, a place where people, people have unfortunately forgotten this debate. I'm certainly writing about it in the dissertation. I think I think what's helpful from Balthazar in this point, so no, let me emphatically deny he's not being a heretic there. I think there's a lot of traditional latitude. Um, right. I agree. I believe that Rotzinger's, um, Ratzinger's caution against going as far in, the in the mode of theological speculation with Balthazar is an appropriate mode for, um, for someone with the ecclesiastical positions he held to take. I think that's true. I also think Ratzinger never, condemned and neither did John Paul II, those particular views of von Balthasar on this, which meant that they believed, and I trust their judgment on this, that there's legitimate latitude for this kind of theological speculation. On the other yeah, hand, I mean, yeah, I think, like, for example, Pitstick treats as determinative elements of tradition, mere pious opinions of saints and so on. I think the tradition the in this regard on this topic is very underdetermined. It and therefore, is. Balthazar was very much within his speculative rights to say, hey, let's let's take this in a in a in other words, I'll say this, and this is why I agree with you and not yeah. Pitstick. Pitstick is insufficiently Christological. Because the I mean you're probably dealing with this in, in your dissertation. Yeah. The the notion of the harrowing of hell where Jesus just goes down as a strong man to disarm Satan and retrieve the righteous, uh, if I'm characterizing it properly, uh it's not it doesn't treat, therefore, any of these afterlife situations as constitutively Christological. That's exactly right. And I mean, the, the surprising place I go for this, I suppose, is uh, Balthazar is critical of Dante. Balthazar is critical of the Inferno precisely because, yeah. I mean, first of all, its effect on the Christian imagination is both beautiful and necessary, and I'd never do away with it. I think it's so helpful. But yeah. there's actually an issue there such that we all picture a fiery underworld of torture um, that then, again, in our picture thinking, Christ can is only allowed to like go down into the first couple levels of and maybe save the righteous people outside the gates, maybe not. Um, that whole picture thinking, that whole, I mean, there's a real purification of the Christian eschatological imagination that can be done in light of von Balthasar's work here. Namely that you can't even think about death the correct way without looking at Christ's death. So even all of those images, the patristic images of the harrowing, they're useful, but that's not to say they can't also undergo some further purification given what we understand yes. about yes. Yeah, death as a Christological reality. Because especially since, look at it this way too, there are eras in the history of theology, great theological eras. The patristic era was one, the medieval era was one, and each one has, as Balthazar's noted, its, its respective genius. My claim, and a claim of probably people like you and others, is that the 20th century represented yet another great flourishing of an entire, an explosion of theological uh, profundity. In, and, I, and I locate it primarily in the Resource Mod School. And what we notice 
And, the, and then the Second Vatican Council becomes the capstone of this. What the 20th century Catholic theological and to a great extent philosophical neo-Thomistic revival represents is a Christological revolution. It's, it's a revolution in a, in a radical Christocentric recentering of our, of our view of everything. And that then therefore legitimates, since Christ is the center of our faith, that legitimates Balthazar's pushing the envelope on, our, on what the descent into hell actually means by actually grounding it Christologically instead of in this sort of mythic images, you know, like you said, drawn from the, the sort of medieval Catholic imaginative uh, imaginative. So what, what, what do you say to that? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I read Balthazar as one who could help to purify uh, our thinking about these things that that uh, yes. as beautiful and as helpful as 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 Dante is. Um, <laughs> hell is disclosed in Christ and so is death. Um, death's full power. Uh, and also the demise of death at the same moment. And that and I mean, this is the dissertation that's disclosive of a perfect human freedom as well. One that that offers its yeah. death. For others and, and, and also that 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 christological recentering removes i'm trying to think of the orthodox theologian i read who said this i, I can't remember who it was who, who said that all too often our vision of hell has been of a penal colony approach a penal yes. code a penal code approach to to the to the next life a judicial penal code approach to the next life and all of those less christological visions of heaven and hell reside in that utterly forensic penal code concept yeah. of the next life. And it's not even remotely Christological enough. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this perspective, uh, I think, is that um, it's in some sense a, a point, not in the middle, but but sort of transcending above like a Massa versus what we now call like a hard universalism. I mean, in some sense, I think what we see in the mystery of Christ's descent into hell through Balthazar is that um, both might be true <laughs> in some sense. Like um, if universalism is true, it might be because the mass of damnata is true. I mean, that's, that's like heretical on two sides to, to put it that way. What I mean is that um, if it's the case that everyone proves to be efficaciously saved in the end, and, and my heart wants to go there as well. I have reason to, I'm in fact commanded as Balthazar says to hope for that. Yes. Um, nevertheless, what I'm certain of, are all of my personal failures and the fact that the drama for me, which is going to, the drama is going to take the same shape, but be particularized for each person. As we were saying earlier, the drama for me is consenting to Christ's death for me, which for certain saints, you know, for, for Mary, it didn't involve death. It didn't involve passing through hell. Right. But for most of us, all of us, all the rest of us, it's going to involve a physical bodily death. And that's, that becomes a, yes, a path yes. through hell and, you know, yes. possibly, with the time in purgatory and so on, but, but not without hell. And I think because of that, the real, the responsible theological Roman Catholic ecclesially obedient position is, um, is this command to hope. I mean, it's all of Benedict's space Salvi is, is the answer to this question. That's really. right. On space Salvi is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, let's uh, go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. I was done. Uh, oh, I was going to say, <clears throat> okay, so let's then, I think that we've established the, the bona fides here of Balthazar's right to do this uh, and that he's not a heretic. But let's move on to then to some of David Hart's uh, more specific <clears throat> arguments in favor of universalism. Mm -hmm. 
excuse me once again to my uh, listeners. Um, and some of his arguments, Hart's arguments, are not so densely Christological or theological as they are merely sort of philosophical and almost moral sorts of arguments. So he would say, for example, why, why, why is it that we would imagine you know, hell to be eternal? Why can't we imagine that hell is merely a temporary stage? Why does hell have to be eternal? Why, why do our very finite sins in this life, which are made often in, a, in very cloudy, cloudy ways. I mean, one of Hart's points is that precisely because we're sinners, we're actually rather incapable of this life of, yeah. of making yeah. proper choices. We're so compromised. So why then in this compromised state, am, am I going to be, cons- you know, even in our penal systems, we would say the, cr- the punishment fits the crime and the punishments yeah. are finite because the crimes are finite. So why does hell have to be eternal? That's that. Let's start with that. Yeah, it's a tough question. And I mean, the further stage, just to continue to, to steal man here, him here, the further stage to Hart's argument there is that if any of that is true, and God sort of foresaw and planned all of it, what the hell kind of God is that that would stack? Well, that was going to be my next point. I was going to build on that. So why don't, yeah. why don't we go there? For example, from all eternity, God knows who is and is not going to be damned, assuming that some are damned. All right. So this is not a case of direct versus permissive will. God can permit evil in this world for the sake of a greater good that will come out in the end with the apocatastasis or whatever. All right. God, but create, if, let's God creates one guy that he knew in the moment of his creation and God's eternal now. That that guy's going to spend eternity in eternal torment and suffering. And he brought that person into existence anyway. Yeah. What kind of a God would do such a thing? What's I have. I'll let me further qualify, and then I'll let you talk. Yeah. The only possible way, in my view, that that can be judged. In fact, here I'm going to justify God for bringing someone into existence who He knows, foreknows, is going to be damned for all eternity eventually, and that this is the end state of His creation. That there are going to be damned souls. He has to, in some sense, have directly willed it. He has to directly will that in creating in the first place, the end product, which is good. And that's going to have some damn souls because God cannot will evil. Therefore, by implication, it's just a theological certitude from that point of view, that therefore the fact that some are damned is actually a good thing. There has to be an overarching good in the damnation of some, which is the only possible reason why God would allow it. Uh, it can't simply be an unmitigated disaster and an unmitigated evil. Otherwise, can't God cannot directly will that as an end product of his creation. Therefore, we're, we end up in this weird sort of way of saying, well, therefore, the fact that some are damned is, you know, praise be God. Uh, hallelujah. Some are going to be damned. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that's a good thing. I can't envision how that's a good thing. And this is where where Hart doesn't really have to do anything except point to point us to um, Ivan Karamazov's rebellion, right? Um, yeah. Ivan says, "Look, let's say in the end the suffering of these children who were tortured and all the terrible examples that are there in in that in that part of the brothers Karamazov. Uh, let's say in the end all will be made well, as the saints say. I'm still returning the ticket because the whole thing depended on the suffering of that child, right?" That to me is is so is so powerful and it's so convincing until until I remember that uh, God has a son <laughs> yeah. who suffers that 
and doesn't work it to a greater good, but utterly empties it of its power. And in fact, not utterly empties it of its power, but, but allows that suffering to not be suffering constitutively because it's a means of union with Christ who suffers it all the deeper, right? In some sense, my response is, yes, all those arguments are true. This is a sort of dastardly devilish picture because evil is a real problem. There's there's definite, uh, and, and Hart is getting increasingly vocal about this. He doesn't care what Roman Catholics think on this. The difference of, of the interpretation of original sin as inherited guilt is, is a difference of, of traditions and various things. And then the the different readings of um, of understandings of the relationship between time and eternity, right? All of that's all of that's loaded here, and I think a lot of that matters in some sense. Uh, now, because Hart doesn't care to at all play along with Roman Catholic magisterium, I in some sense we don't have to talk about it because he's coming from an entirely yeah. different. Yeah. What I think the real issue is that these are all such like logically tight syllogisms that aren't that don't have this Christological shape. If it's the case that Christ is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, then it is in some sense written into the picture that distance from God is a good because there's distance in God and that founds the personal difference. This is where the, the Balthasarian. Yeah. Would... yeah. Okay, good. And hell, seen... defi- and hell defined is simply distance from God. Distance from God. Yeah. Uh, uh, willfully chosen or, or willfully suffered at least, but yeah. definite distance from God. There's also a way to read the phenomenon of creation as a distance from God that's good. And so I think both in the Trinity and in the very fact of, of creation and incarnation, we have theological grounds to say that distance from God is, is good in and of itself. Evil precisely apes off of that. It says that I will achieve my God-likeness by distance from God or by usurping his power and so on and so forth. So of course that sort of eats away at the structure of the world. Of course it causes suffering, but precisely I mean, in some sense, my response, and it's going to sound lame from a PhD student saying this in response to David Bentley Hart, but in some sense, my response to all this is like, the good news is that Christ suffered and died for me. He took my place. He died in that absurd system precisely so I don't suffer that fate, right? Yeah. And the response yeah. of me as a, as a disciple is to participate in the sacramental structure, to participate, to, to become a member of that body. In some sense, the answer to this is that um, that whole thing is absurd. So therefore we've got to cleave to the one guy that made it through the thing. <laughs> Christ. Yeah. And, and what we're talking yeah. about here that are different modalities of distance from God, yeah. uh, that, that, and that, you know, this is actually a very profound argument, Danny, don't, don't apologize for, you know, it's, I'm a PhD student. I say such a thing. No, I think it's actually, it's, it's deeply grounded in Balthazar's Trinitarian theology that involves, you know, dis- an infinite distance within the Godhead that is infinitely bridged in, in, in love. And as Balthazar says in Heart of the World, love only happens at a distance. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Love, love requires distance. Uh, identity does not lead to love. Distance re- leads to love. So there's, we're talking about different modalities here of, of distance from God. Uh, one transformed in Christ, another not transformed in Christ or transformed in Christ, but choosing to live outside of that transformation in some way uh, in a different modality of distance. I think that's a very, very interesting take, Danny, one I've never heard before. And I thank you for that because I, I think that's extremely helpful. I really do. I think uh, and I want to say, go ahead. It's the, it's the simplest answer in a way. It's, it's 
Look, well, it answers the problem that I raised. It, it happens. The it answers the problem that I raised. That in some sense, in order for God to will, in the act yeah. of creation, that some will choose not to participate in Christological transformation, uh, and end up in perdition or whatever you want to call it. The only possible way for God to choose that is that there must be some way in which it comports with the divine nature, with the divine goodness. And I and I think you just delimbed a very interesting. Uh, path of conversation in that regard that I have never thought of before. And I thank you for that. See, the, the student is now teaching the teacher. Uh, <laughs> well, there's, there's and, more to say, and David might be quickly to say like, oh, okay, so God is a devil for you. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, and Hart would say that. And I would say this, though, if David Hart, by some chance, ends up listening to this or somebody brings it to his attention, I, I will say this about David. I like David, by the way, uh, very much. Uh, and I, 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 I think it's unfortunate, uh, and I know why, though. He's taken it from all sides. But I do yes. think it's, un, it's unfortunate that he does not take more seriously uh, the Catholic tradition as a serious interlocutor. Uh, if for no other reason, simply practical reasons, in other words, if he's interested in the truth of his theological propositions being more broadly accepted, I don't think it serves that process well to simply look at an entire right. body of one billion, a billion and a half believers and say, uh, the, the authority structures of your ecclesial communion interest me not one whit. And you've got some dogmas and they're just stupid and good luck with that. And you deal with that. I'm not going to deal with that. Instead of taking that approach, I wish uh, because a lot of us Catholics are very sympathetic to heart. I'm sympathetic. You're sympathetic. I know a lot that are, but then we still have these dogmatic commitments that we're not simply like David Hart going to simply, well, to hell with those. So we have to wrestle with that. And I would, I would like David to help us wrestle with that yeah. because he has the genius to help us wrestle with that. He certainly does. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wish, I wish David, Throw me a bone here, would you? Uh, because I, I think I think we could use uh, um, a friendlier interlocutor from a Catholic perspective. But he's taking it on the nose from so many. He is, and I, I should I should I should thank him publicly. I I, I wrote an earlier paper that where I was trying to engage him and von Balthasar, and I sent it to him, and he responded to me. It was very. He said I was wrong, but he he carefully went through and 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 made points. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So it's very uh, direct correspondence. It's it's amazing, and he's so. Uh, but I just wish that his critics that would actually his thought now for yeah. for Catholics. Like I think he I think he hits so many points. I, I think ultimately Balthazar makes them better, makes them in a more satisfactory ecclesial setting that allows me to remain yeah. in communion yeah. with the church. And and as a sane person who will wishes prays hopes wills the salvation of all as is as is God's universal salvific will I think that's just as clear. Yeah, and and I would offer a plea to yeah. all those out there that are simply dismissive of hearts or even people like me sympathetic to him like you so on. That let's let's not let's not take this conversation and drag it down into the mud of heresy hunting or heresy mm -hmm. accusations, which it okay so. Maybe a hard universalism is a, is is a is a heresy from a strict Catholic point of view, but what we're having here is an ex this is what, an example of engaging the world, right? What we're having here is an interesting conversation with a brilliant theologian, and we're we're coming at this brilliant theologian from within the Catholic theological dogmatic perspective with questions, and we we seek him out as an interlocutor, uh, and to say that we're sympathetic to his arguments and we want to engage them. 
in, you know, in no way implies that we're just about to chuck the whole Catholic tradition and we're all going to become hard universalists overnight and so on and so forth. It's 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 this is how a real ecclesial conversation takes place, and it cannot take place in the toxic atmosphere of, of tratty accusations about heresy. It's a heresy. It's been condemned and and, and, and all this nonsense about how well, we need a fulsomely populated hell. Otherwise, we won't be motivated to evangelize and crap like that, you know, from Ralph Martin and, and, and stuff like that. You know, uh, I mean, and, and people accuse me of being unfair to Ralph Martin. But the fact of the matter is, he says that he says that one of the reasons why evangelization has fallen away is because we don't really believe enough in, you know, people in hell anymore. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that's a really bad motivation to evangelize. Quite well, frankly. and Balthazar's response to that, I think, is a convincing one, which is that if you really think other people are in hell, you probably shouldn't be talking to most people, because if God doesn't bother with them for all eternity, you shouldn't bother being neighborly. Right. That's the absurdity yeah. of perspective that, hey, you know what, that guy, my neighbor across the street, he's definitely going to hell. OK, fine. Let's say that's true. Never talk to him. Leave your dog poop on his lawn. Like you shouldn't be. <laughs> toward him but that's yeah. actually not the demand we receive <laughs> yeah right? yeah you know and it's actually an argument for not evangelizing people because what if you evangelize them and they reject and then oh i've been responsible now for them going to hell because i preached jesus to them and they said no to jesus and so aren't you better off not mentioning jesus to them at all let I them remain you. in ignorance of jesus so they don't have to make a decisional choice for or against jesus and that way they then you know anyway we're getting into crazy waters now and i i, I don't want to stir up too many nasty emails after this youtube video goes public but uh but anyway <laughs> but yeah yeah direct them all towards danny drain and I just, you know, anyway, so uh, do, do you have any, uh, we've been at this now for a long time, an hour and 40 minutes or so. Uh, so we should probably wrap this up. We can obviously do another conversation down the road. Maybe we can drag that crazy fool, Matt Cooner into the conversation and Hauser drag his bony ass in here. And yeah, Hauser and I, did I just yeah. say that did I? Yeah. Hauser's bony ass. And he, <laughs> Hauser by the way, his skinny little up. ankles. I don't know how his ankles even support his body. I mean, they're like tooth toothpicks. It's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, no, but I, anyway, so do you have any last thoughts, Danny? No, just, uh, just an appreciation of you and, and a word of thanks for, um, for the community of study circles, which sent me to the Institute where I got to learn from David Schindler, wow. where I got to encounter, uh, Pope Benedict the 16th, his, his work, his thought, his legacy. And it, it set me on the way. I realized uh, last semester when I was teaching just after Schindler died, um, I begin every class in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner, which is how Schindler began every class. And it's true that you always, your teaching is influenced and you end up kind of mimicking things you learn from your teachers. From you, I learned a lot of swearing and a lot of great jokes, but it really struck me. There was something so Oh, beautiful. no theology. You just remember my <laughs> swearing, you know, that creation Actually, is made up of sticks and shit, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. My first communio study circle, I believe we read the article by Juan Seurat on Holy Saturday. So you actually are responsible for all of this. That was the first real, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. And actually having students like you and Cooner and Rachel Coleman and, you know, Kelly Schuster. Well, I, just and all, wanted to, you know. I wanted to connect some threads here that, that people ask a lot. And you even asked the question, like, what do we do given the mission of Communio, given the, given the call of Vatican II? And and I, I think um, often the call I hear is that we need translators. We need people who are, are yes. willing to 
uh, encounter regular people in the world and bring the theology down to their level. And I don't really like talking that way, but I just wanted to point out that um, you really lived your life as a professor that way. You absolutely did that. You should never downplay uh, your chops, your scholarly gifts, your all of well, that. Thank you for precisely that. Precisely brought that whole world and inspired a generation of us. So just thank, thank you, you, Dan. That means a lot to me because, in point of fact, uh, I am completely incompetent in most things in life. I I, I, I can't fix a car. I, I can barely mow a lawn. Seriously, I have no mechanical skills, carpentry skills. Uh, I can't balance a checkbook. Uh, accounting is beyond me. Spreadsheets enrage me. Uh, <laughs> administrative duties are way beyond me. And stuff. But there's one thing in life. There is one thing in life. And I will. This is not false, you know, arrogance, but I'll just it's self-knowledge. One thing in life that I was good at, and that was translation. To be able to teach, to take big ideas and translate them into inspiring ideas that people can understand. And, and I see my life now as a blogger and a YouTuber and speaker as simply a continuation of what I was doing back at the sales in the classroom, just in a, in a different digital sort of way. So thank you that for the, for that kind remark, because it does get confirmed. We're talking earlier about holiness and, you know, your vocation and living your vocation. And I do view what I do now as a ministry, as a vocation. So when I get kind words like that from you and others, it actually really energizes me. And it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, Danny. So thank you very much. <laughs> Anytime. All right. Give, give my best to your beautiful bride and uh, congrats on your new child and Matt and Steve and Marco Stango, that crazy Italian fool. Uh, Marco wants to come on and talk about uh, Del Noche. Oh, Dang gun, that is such a great idea. I'm always trying to think of guests and why I didn't think of Marco Stango to talk about Del Noche. You tell him. He has a, he has a send, book. Me his, send me his email address. I will. I will. He has a book forthcoming on death. He doesn't want to talk about that yet because he's still writing it, but he's ready to talk about Del Noche. So you should do that. Will do. Thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening and thank you, Danny, for taking the past hour and a half hour and 40 minutes to discuss some I, I this was absolutely one of the best conversations i've ever had uh so thank you for that i'm going to hit stop record now thanks everybody for listening <laughs>